This is the Innovation Civilization Podcast, and my name is Wahid Rahman. My today's guest is Dr. Parj Karmadi, who's a professor in geography at Trinity College at the University of Dublin and author of the book, The New Scramble of Africa. I'm also joined by John Kayser, who's a UK civil servant and worked in politics in Africa for a long, long time. In this episode, we discuss the history of African scrambles by European colonial powers between the 18th to 20th century, what is a scramble, as well as the new scramble that is affecting Africa today, and also the future of African development. All right, brilliant. Parig and John, welcome to the Innovation Civilization Podcast. What a great pleasure to have you guys here today. Thanks, Wahid. Thanks for having us. Brilliant. So, Porig, you wrote a book on the scramble for Africa. Just for our listeners who don't really understand what a scramble is, what a scramble for Africa is, can you give a bit of context by what you mean by that? Sure. My book is called The New Scramble for Africa, and I guess it takes its title from another period of history that there are historical resonances of now, which was the scramble for Africa in the late 19th century and early 20th century which was when the major European powers carved up the continent between themselves and established formal colonies, whereas many of them had had an informal presence before. The new scramble, the man who wrote mm-hmm. the uh, scramble for Africa is a guy called Thomas Packenham. In mm-hmm. the early 2000s, people started to talk about the idea that there might be a new scramble for Africa, and that was associated with a couple of things. Firstly, China was beginning mm-hmm. to emerge as a major global economic power power, not a geopolitical power at that point, but it was really beginning to assert its economic influence in different parts of the world, and particularly in Africa. Mm. There was also other things happening, like the US and British invasion of Iraq, which drove up oil prices. The US was looking to diversify its oil supplies away from the Middle East, which was perceived to be unstable. Dick Cheney, who was vice president at the time, Mm. had a kind of commission to look into that, how to diversify American oil supplies to ensure they weren't overly dependent on one region. And so there were a variety of things Mm -hmm. coming together at that time. China moved from being a net oil exporter in 1993 to a net oil importer. And because its economy Mm -hmm. was growing so rapidly, it needed all sorts of natural resources, oil, copper, tin, iron, all sorts of things to fuel its construction boom and also to fuel its manufacturing economy. So this is the idea of the new scramble And the answer was Africa, yeah? The answer was partly Africa. Africa in the early last decade, at certain points in time, accounted for Mm -hmm. about a third of Chinese oil imports. That's fallen back to about 10% now. Again, the Chinese were becoming Mm -hmm. wary of becoming overly dependent on one region for oil supplies. So Saudi Arabia is the biggest supplier now. At some points in time, it was Angola Mm. in West Africa. But also Latin America, Eastern Europe, the Chinese economy, Mm. the economy economists have something called the rule of 72. And that is, if you Mm -hmm. divide the rate of economic growth into 70 or 72, that will give you the doubling time of the economy. And if China was growing at Mm -hmm. 10%, as it was for decades, that meant it had a doubling time Mm -hmm. of seven years. The Chinese economy was doubling in size every every seven years, and that exerted absolutely massive demand for these natural resources Mm -hmm. that were sourced from wherever they could be, essentially. Yeah, Yeah. and we'll come back to China in a bit, play a 
because there's a lot to unpack there. But I just want to double click a little bit on the first scramble. You mentioned there about how the European powers went in there and carved the continent up, I guess, with the Berlin Conference, you know, the Otto von Bismarck and stuff like that. Can you kind of paint as a picture of what were the motivations and sure. what did, did it actually look like and what happened basically just for our listeners who are unaware of sure. the 19th century? You mentioned Otto von Bismarck there, who was known as the Iron Chancellor of Prussia. And he mm-hmm. united mm-hmm. the German states apart from Austria. And one of the ways he did that was through the mm-hmm. Franco-Prussian War. He forged that sense of unity or identity through the invasion of France and winning that war. And one of the things that people have said mm-hmm. is the irony is that Bismarck united Germany, but he divided Africa. <laughs> he didn't want the great European powers to fight additional wars over Africa. He didn't consider it to be important enough. The German king or Kaiser had said that he wanted Germany's place in the sun. So Britain and France had colonies in India and different places around the world. Germany didn't have Mm -hmm. so many, so Germany wanted its place in the sun. Okay. Why did the scramble kick off in the late 19th century? If you think about it, most of the rest of the world had either been colonized or subjugated to European powers. So from Australia Mm -hmm. to North America, Mm -hmm. South America, but a lot of Africa remained independent. There are a number of reasons for Mm -hmm. that. The first, some people have said, is that actually African states and societies were sometimes quite militarily strong. The Ethiopians defeated the Italians famously at the Battle of Adwa in the late 19th century, for example. But far from the idea that Africa was a place of relative underdevelopment, Mm -hmm. some people have argued that actually some of the societies were strong and were able to resist European intrusion. Okay, so that's one thing. Second reason was advances in technology. So quinine, which is an anti-malarial, was first extracted from tree bark in 1820. European mortality rates in West Africa were very high because Europeans didn't have any natural resistance to malaria and also yellow fever was prevalent there as well. Some of these technological innovations or advancements enabled the European colonization of Africa. So that's the background. In terms of the factors that really pushed it, there were a number of things. First one was the American Civil War. What that did was it restricted supplies of cotton to the global market. And obviously, Britain at that point was the workshop of the world. The textile and clothing industries were huge. You know, Manchester and the surrounding cities accounted for about a third of world supply of textiles at that point in time. They're having difficulty getting access to cotton during the American Civil War. So you find these textile manufacturers actually writing to the British Prime Minister and saying, look, we need to open up new sources of cotton supply. India isn't enough. We have to find other territories where Mm. we can source cotton. So that's one thing. Secondly, the European, broader European economy entered what was known at the time as the Great Depression from the early 1870s. It's now known as the Long Depression, lasting until about the end of the 19th century. Mm. Because economies were depressed, European powers were looking for new markets for their products. There wasn't the purchasing power in Europe to really propel further industrialization and there was excess industrial capacity so there was a big push to open up new markets and the scramble for Africa was part of that. A third reason was geopolitical and Britain was the world's preeminent power at that point in time but it was being challenged by the French and the Germans and so there were also geopolitical motivations so for example the British wanted to control and the French uh, and the Portuguese and others strategic trade routes and territories 
territories. So if you look mm. at the map of Africa, and we'll talk, I think, a little bit more about this, but if you look at the geography of the Gambia, which was Britain's penal colony, essentially, at certain mm. points, only a couple of miles wide on either side of the Gambia River. And the British took that territory, essentially, because they didn't want the French to mm. have it. This was considered to be a strategic trade route. It was also a major supplier, as I said, of, of peanuts for Britain. It was a combination of those factors. The fact that the British Empire was coming mm. to the height of its power and the height of its geographical extent was before it went into decline. They were trying to capture mm. territory and influence in order to forestall being overtaken by some of the other mm. major European powers. Yeah, and that makes sense, really. In fact, it's interesting, like right before this episode, I was working with like ChatGPT and the Gen AI, and it generated for me a beautiful table around, okay, what European country colonized and where did it colonize and the main mm -hmm. resources it extracted, basically. So I've got Britain here, colonized Egypt, Sudan, Uganda, Kenya, and South Africa, and extracted like gold, diamonds, rubber, tea, cotton, like you mentioned. Then you had France here who did like Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, uh, West Africa, Madagascar. Most of the stuff was iron ore, gold, peanuts. You've got Belgium, which colonized the Congo Free Strait, and then rubber, ivory, and copper. And the list goes on and on. It was more like you've got tons of resources out there and just want to build up the industrialization of your countries, right? So it's uh, up for grabs in a lot of ways. So yeah, I mean, the Cecil Rhodes, when he was yeah. the British Prime Minister of the Cape Colony in South Africa at certain points in his life, mm. and he was a big industrialist, mm. but he had a vision of British rule from Cairo to the Cape. And actually, if you look at those countries you were talking about there, Britain did colonize that line yeah. from Egypt through Sudan, right the way down to South Africa. And that shows Britain was yeah. the dominant colonial power in Africa. The, the French tried an east-west axis mm. across the Sahel, but they weren't able to quite manage it. And the Portuguese had something called the red map or, or pink map, the Mapa Rossa, where they again had their vision of the strategic territory they wanted to capture in Africa. Can I jump in there? Yeah. Many yeah. times when I worked at the National Assembly in Cape Town, I used to go into company gardens. I don't know if you've been there, where you've seen that statue of, yes, I have, yeah. of Cecil Rhodes. And, and it says behind it, this is your hinterland. As you've just rightly said, mm. he had a vision of building a railway line from Cape Town to Cairo. And you know, one thinks of the gold rush and you think of the foundation of the Cape Colony and so forth. When you look at the scramble of Africa, looking back and having read your absolutely brilliant book, do you think it was just about asset stripping, as Wahid just spoke about, to feel the global economy in the global north, or what we call the global north today? Or do you think it was underpinned also by a transformative vision in any way to uplift parts of Africa? Sure, yeah, no. I think you're right. Rhodes felt that the great tragedy of international relations was what he called the division of the Anglo-Saxon race. The loss of mm. the United States. He established Rhodes mm. scholarships at Oxford to try and bring future American leaders to the UK to study in the hopes that they would influence a reunification with Britain. So his vision, mm. the Europeans and the British in particular, talked about the three C's, which was Christianity, civilization, yes. and commerce. And Cecil Rhodes, when mm. he was asked what colonialism was, he said it was philanthropy plus a 5% return on investment. Yes. So any economic <laughs> project like awesome that question. has to have an ideological basis yes. to it. It can't just be, as you say, asset stripping, land and resource grabbing, because mm. politically that won't be acceptable to people back mm. in the colonizing countries and certainly not to the people in the places that are being colonized. So there has to be an ideological 
psychological dimension. And of course, people are complex. We're not just driven by money. We have all sorts of values and beliefs about what's right mm. and wrong. And that vision mm. that this was in some way philanthropic to take people's land, establish your rule over them, tax them, and so on. The two worked kind of together. Archbishop Desmond Tutu famously said, you know, the Europeans came to Africa. They gave us the Bible. They told us to close our eyes. When they told us to close our eyes, we had the land and they had the Bible. When we opened our eyes, they had the land and we had the Bible. So, <laughs> so <laughs> that's a very good one. So there was, yeah, there was certainly a very strong missionary aspect to yes. this, and and interestingly, Irish Catholic priests played a strong role in this regard in terms of the expansion of the British Empire. Even though Ireland was a colony of Britain, and even though Catholicism was not the main religion in the mainland UK as it, as it was then, nonetheless, they were part of this. Some people have argued colonial project by bringing education, by bringing Christianity, even though there, there were tensions and conflicts there, nonetheless, you know, it functioned as a kind of ideological whole or structure. That's quite interesting, actually, just circling back to in terms of the Berlin Conference and Bismarck's sort of carving up of Africa. How much do you think those carving up processes, you know, that he did actually affects Africa today or Africa through the 20th century as we enter the 21st century? Yeah. Sometimes when people think of the Berlin Conference, they think of the European big powers and some of the smaller powers like Belgium, which who had a subsequent conference in Brussels in 1890 around the slave trade. And the suppression of the slave trade, again, was one of the justifications for the scramble for the mm -hmm. continent. They think of them drawing lines on a map. And if you look at a map of Africa, a third of the borders are actually lines or follow lines of latitude and longitude. So if you look at Angola or you look at the, mm -hmm. you know, the northern border, of Angola, you'll see these straight lines. And that gives the impression that they sat around a big map and they kind of drew it. And that's true to some extent, they agreed spheres of influence. But the objective of the Berlin Conference was mm. actually to allow all European powers to access African resources. So rather than having, the idea was that mm. you wouldn't have a scramble which could potentially result in military confrontation. But the so way- like a win-win, basically. Yeah, well, mm. for some people, yeah. yeah. It didn't work out like that. So they did establish establish something called the doctrine yeah. of effective occupation, which was basically you had to show you were mm -hmm. capable of administering the territory. This set off a race which culminated in something called the Fashoda incident, which is in Fashoda is in modern day Sudan, where the French and the British faced off against each other. And they had to call in the, I think it was the, was it the Americans to mediate it? And they resolved it in mm. favor of the British. There's something called Fashoda syndrome, where the French feel that they have been disadvantaged by the Anglophone powers historically. And that's one of the reasons France has re retained such an emphasis on Africa in its foreign policy, maintaining French military bases, mm. linking many West African, linking the currency of its former colonies or many of its former colonies in West Africa to the franc and to the euro. The Berlin Conference did carve up or laid the foundation or framework for the carving up of Africa. And that had a variety of impacts. There were political impacts. 
impacts. So these arbitrary or sometimes arbitrary lines on the map obviously divided different ethnic groups. So you have Somalis Mm -hmm. in Kenya, you have some of them in Ethiopia. So that was one thing. Some people said it put together ethnic groups that created these territories that were multi-ethnic and that created potential for conflict in the future, particularly in the post-colonial period. The other Mm -hmm. thing that the European powers did was they invented ethnicities and they also engaged in what's called Mm -hmm. re-tribalization. So using the old Roman strategy of divide and rule, if you can get people to identify Mm -hmm. with their ethnicity and you pit ethnicities against each other, you can play one against the other and you can remain in power in that context. So there's a huge debate about the impact of the conference. The other thing it did, of course, was it created these relatively small territories across a lot of the continent. Mm. There are some countries with huge populations in Africa. Nigeria is about 200 million people, but many of them have quite small territories, populations and resources. And what that did was it, in the post-colonial era, militated against economic development because you had a small economy, you couldn't develop economies of scale for your industries. The railway gauges were different between French and British colonies, so you couldn't develop integrated regional markets. The infrastructure was oriented to Europe, so if you wanted to to place a call from Senegal to Côte d'Ivoire or from Nigeria to Ghana, those calls would be routed through London and Paris, making them massively expensive. There were all sorts of economic impacts. What people have sometimes said is that African identity, and of course we have to be careful not to talk about Africa as a singular place. It's a huge continent of Mm. 54, 55 different countries. Heterogeneous. Exactly. Economically, socially, politically, and so on. Some people have argued that what those kind of colonial processes did was to bolster ethnicity, ethnic identity, but also then because of the division of Africa and its exploitation by the colonial powers, also to give a strong identity with the continent and not such a strong identity at national level. So there's strong African identity, some people have argued, and then strong local or ethnic Mm. identity as well but not so much attachment to the nation state, which because of the way in which these countries were created, weren't really nation states. They were plurinational states and also Mm. colonial legacy of authoritarianism and the way in which the colonies were ruled gave people a bad taste, if you like, about the state and its purpose. It was often seen to be extractive Mm. and oppressive rather than being representative of the population and their aspirations and needs. Yeah, it all feels very familiar and in a very European fashion, I'm just like the Sykes-Pickett agreement with the Middle East as well, quite similar, I guess. What I was trying to get at and understand from you was there's lots and lots of literature written on dire poverty in Africa, and which is like a bit entrenched poverty and how to get along that. And geography, those landlocked countries specifically mm-hmm. are some of those countries where this kind of poverty occurs. Do you think that the way that Africa was carved up has any sort of consequence on how poverty poverty is entrenched today and how economic development over time happened there? Absolutely. So being landlocked is oftentimes a disadvantage in terms of economic development, right? Coastal sea transport is cheaper per unit. It's much cheaper to transport huge 20 or 40 foot containers on a big ship than it is to have them on trains or on trucks and much more efficient. It, It may reduce distance to markets, to overseas markets, if you're on the coast as well. Some people have said that 
landlockedness is actually a political construction. So if we think about India, India we don't think of as landlocked, but central India is landlocked. The way those borders were drawn that landlocked yes. certain countries like Rwanda mm. or Burundi or others. Okay, so that's one thing to say. The other thing is, I think we have to be careful not to ascribe too much importance to physical geography. If you look at mm. Switzerland, Switzerland is landlocked, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, and by some measures, the most industrialized country in the world. Okay, so what's really important is the kind of institutions, the politics, the policy, the history. Landlockedness does not preclude economic development. It's these social and political and economic factors which I think are more important. The other thing that's happened in the last couple of years yeah. is people have talked about the idea of land linked. That is, if you can improve your infrastructure, you can actually use your landlocked positionality as an advantage. And I'll give you an example of that. I was in Zambia, as I was saying to you, this northern hemisphere summer and I went and I looked at two Chinese factories. One of them is a cement plant which produces 60,000 bags of cement a day. Another one was a mm -hmm. tile factory which produces 54 square kilometers of tiles a day. But Zambia is landlocked. It's 1,300 miles from the mm -hmm. sea. These are companies which have established in Zambia in order to serve the regional market. Even though it was a major disadvantage for Zambia in actuality now, it's been able to attract some of these massive investments precisely because of where mm. it's located as well as its history of relations with China. I was going to ask you this a bit later but because it's under the conversations unfolding this way I just found that so fascinated and because when I was reading your book you mentioned about the telephone exchange how calls used to go through Paris or Brussels when I sometimes would travel with a cabinet minister to somewhere in northern Africa you know what it's like from Johannesburg or Cape Town if I was going to Algiers you'd go via Paris and other places also in West Africa. You've spoken about how Africa's national geography and its distance has made developing comparative advantage strategies difficult for African states. I read that very clearly. Are you sort of saying that like countries like the, the example you've just given it, Zambia, can that mm -hmm. circumvent that the problem of comparative advantage? That maybe it's not determined by a broad range of factors, but as Ricardo Osman says, by really just simply knowing what to do. So I think the conventional economics approach to this is let the market decide what you're good at. It's based mm -hmm. on supply yeah, and demand yeah. and relative prices. Mm -hmm. And if you let market forces reign untrammeled, then the market will identify what you're good at. People mm. will be incentivized to specialize in that. And if you focus on what you're good at, that will build up your capital. You'll be able to invest that and then you'll be able to diversify. The problem with that strategy for much of Africa is that they became or were locked in as primary commodity producers during colonialism. So producing peanuts or copper in the Zambian case or other low value added commodities. And prices for those historically trend downwards, whereas prices for many services and for more advanced manufactured goods trend upwards. Mm. So that locks you into what some people have called a trade trap. The trade trap, if the value of your exports are going down and the price of your imports is going up, you're going to have to finance the gap somehow. And how do you do that? Well, you do that by borrowing. So the trade mm. trap feeds into then potentially a debt trap in time. Yes. Every country is different. Every country has advantages and disadvantages in terms of its economic development. But if you look, you know, somewhere like Singapore, Singapore, when it separated from Malaysia, was thought to be a complete economic backwater. And it was felt by some people this was economic suicide, yeah. essentially, you know, carving off a city state with no natural resources to speak of from a much bigger country, which was very resource rich. Yeah. 
20% of the GDP was this uh, US air base in Singapore. Okay, <laughs> interesting. Just crazy. Yeah. But look at Singapore now. Singapore is one of the most developed countries in the world. Yeah. That's where the politics really becomes important. And some people have argued that if you look at the most successful examples of late development in the world, South Korea, Taiwan, China, Singapore, yeah, the entire you know, countries. And also in the African context, maybe Ethiopia and Rwanda are sometimes mentioned as countries that have made great strides in development. It's because of the security context that they've, because of either internal or external security threats, that's really concentrated politicians and policy officials' minds, and they've had to develop economic development strategies in order to build up their economies so they could defend themselves militarily, either internally or externally. There's something called systematic or systemic vulnerability theory. The politics and the institutions and the history is really more important than the, the physical geography when we're talking about these kinds of issues. Just from out of curiosity, you talked about the institutions, you know, and the politics that's there. In terms of the quality of these institutions in Africa, as we see today, do you think the first scramble of like a bit of asset stripping, a bit of building up social rafts and kind of going there, maybe even building up temporary institutions, do you think a lot of that hindered or helped in the making of the quality of institutions in Africa, mm -hmm. would you yeah, say? Great question. The short answer is hindered. If you look at Mm -hmm. one of the most successful countries in terms of its economy on the continent, Botswana, had the fastest rate of economic growth in the world from mm -hmm. the 1960s through the 1990s. So faster than China, faster than some of the other countries we've talked about. Some people have argued that partly that was because it wasn't really colonized by the British. It was British Bashuna land. It was an arid and semi-arid territory. There weren't many or they didn't think there were many resources to speak of there. So it went under the radar mm -hmm. and there wasn't the same intense colonization processes maybe that there were in other places. If you think about colonialism, it was an extractive mm. institution. It was about getting the natural resources out and bringing in manufactured goods dear, suppressing or repressing the population or trying to get them ideologically through religion or through attachment to what are called neo-traditional institutions. So the British did things like appointed chiefs in South Africa, warren mm. chiefs. These were not traditional institutions sometimes they were actually created by the colonists, again, in this divide and rule kind of tactic. That extractive imprint is long-lived. And one of the things that it did was it made African states, many of them, into what are so-called gatekeeper states. But because the economies were bad, and in some cases deliberately deindustrialized by colonialism, it gave the state a special place as a site where these economic transactions could be overseen, mediated, and value extracted from them. So through border taxes, but the control of trade was mm. where a lot of the money was. And the state served that function of the control of trade because Paul Collier, who I know you've had on your, your podcast as well, talks about this. You know, he says, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not sure that I agree completely, but he says, you know, the best and the brightest in the Western countries go into engineering and finance, mm. you know, where there's a lot of money potentially to be made. He says in Africa, mm. that's not the case. The best and the brightest... Yeah 
yeah. go into politics because that's where they see that the money yes. can be made or the potential can be uh, <laughs> kind of leveraged for business deals and procurement and contracts mm. and all of those kinds of things. Yeah. That was a really great observation. I saw that in South yeah. Africa where 60% of the public sector budget was on civil service salaries. And I could see when I was working on myself, they far outstripped the private sector salaries. So I think you're really spot on there. And that mm. was so interesting. Thank you. If I can just mm. loop back to Ricardo Hausman, because I see that you cite him in your book, some of your mm. research, and he taught me at the Kennedy School. Ah. And so I'm a big fan, as much as I'm now a fan of your book. And, and he uses, just looping back to what I was saying, that famous analogy of the monkeys leaping from tree to tree and saying about how to overcome the comparative advantage problem. How can African states move preferentially towards nearby goods with the problem of distance that you've so eloquently explained? And how can they really become powerful drivers of innovation in success in business and industry and services with all those constraints that you've described in your book? Great and big question. And if we, if we knew the answer... I know. <laughs> no <question. But> <laughs> <laughs> My perspective on it would be conventional economics tells us to let the market decide. But I think the market can lock you into these poverty traps that we've been talking about. You need to use the market to shape the market. The way you do that effectively is through industrial policy. Some people say mm. government yeah. failure can be worse than market failure. And so if you have governments that are corrupt and yeah. inefficient, maybe the economic outcomes will be worse with industrial policy than if you let the market determine resource allocation. That's an argument. I think what it neglects is that you can build state capability. It's, you know, the state can change and does yes. change in response to geopolitics, internal political dynamics, capacity building programs, and all sorts of things. Now, what that industrial policy looks like will vary from country to country, but one of the continent's big problems is the offshoring of wealth. There's some statistics which say about half of Africa's private sector wealth is held overseas, you know, in bank accounts, right. in real estate, in Florida or whatever it is. That's money which could be used productively on the continent. When South Korea was industrializing, if you exported foreign exchange illegally, that could be subject you to the death penalty. It was such a scarce resource and it was felt to be so vital for industrialization that they kept foreign currency in order to import the machine tools, the components and the other things they needed to industrialize. The African market, African wealth and stopping those particularly illicit financial flows, but also illicit, not stopping them, but regulating them to make sure that they're serving national developmental purposes is really important. The relative role that different factors will play will vary between countries. So Zambia, for example, has several hundred Chinese companies there. They employ about 50,000 people, for example. So it's been quite successful in attracting Chinese investment. So that's part of the Zambian development strategy. Ethiopia has been very successful in uh, attracting a lot of Chinese investment as well. Other countries maybe that aren't able to do that so much, maybe they have to have different strategies. Maybe they have to add value to their agricultural products. Rwanda has this idea that it's going to be the kind of Singapore of Africa and it's going to be a high-tech and service financial hub. Different places 
devices can have different strategies, but for me, some of the components will be similar, and that is retaining and using your own domestic capital in combination with foreign capital to bring in technology and skills and other things. Looking at how resources are used from living in South Africa, the the number of luxury cars on the roads there, you know, is that a good use of of money to spend it on Ferraris and and, uh, Mercedes McLarens and and all of these (laughs) other kind of supercars, you know, when you could, that, that could be used to do all sorts of other things that are more socially and economically productive. So regulating trade and finance, if it's done well, and if it doesn't create a situation where you're just fostering what economists call rent seeking, which is basically you're going to the government, you're not very efficient, but you're just going to the government and you're making a profit by virtue of your political connections and and imports are being stopped from coming in or being heavily taxed and you don't have to be competitive. So you can still make money, but you don't have to export. The South Koreans had a very different strategy, which was they modulated competition. So they looked those companies they wanted to develop as national champions. They gave them subsidies and incentives to export. They also protected them from foreign competition initially that they couldn't compete with. They didn't create these kind of rent-seeking, inefficient companies. They really focused on making sure that they were companies that were going to be focused on driving productivity and innovation uh, in the economy and exporting and connecting into the global market. That's absolutely fascinating. I think it's correct. One of the frustrations I know that President Ramaphosa feels in South Africa, for instance, is you're absolutely right. A lot of the large monopoly companies, because a lot of natural, you know, in South Africa is very much a monopoly economy still, as you know, in many ways bears very much the contours of the apartheid and the colonial economy. His frustration, you know, and just pushing back a little bit, I agree with you, is mm-hmm. that they're saying, well, the problem of a lot of these large companies, that, as you just rightly say, they're sitting on massive profits that could be invested into the social fabric of society and to stimulate the economy. But companies like Ashanti Gold, Anglo-American and so forth, they're saying, yes, we want to, but part of the problem is that we don't have policy certainty and predictability. One of the problems, particularly in, the, in sub-Saharan Africa, a country that does have policy certainty, you've already referenced, and that's Rwanda. Have you been? I have, yeah. I've been to Rwanda four yeah. or five times, I'd say. Yeah. Oh, wow. Even though I've just been there. Fascinating visit. Yeah. And as you know, President Kagame, he very famously wants to replicate the small city strategy of Singapore, which mm-hmm. you've just cited, and mm-hmm. also to a lesser degree, the other emerging middle powers like mm-hmm. the UAE and Qatar. You see his ministers and civil servants, they're all studying the writings mm-hmm. of Lee Kuan Yew. You see them on the plane, they're very austere. President Kagame only appoints people if they're fit for purpose, if they can do the job. I see the vision, I understand it. And as you, you just outlined that, the thing with Singapore and the UAE, Dubai, Qatar, they're all super connected. They're literally on the global superhighways, aren't they? With, you know, peerless aviation and shipping routes. Do you actually think, and you've mentioned the problem of being landlocked or the phenomena of being landlocked. Do you mm-hmm. think his strategy is achievable and appropriate given the problem of distance? Do you think it is too far from other, to use that metaphor, other trees to mm-hmm. trade goods and services with? To talk about your tree analogy there. So this is the, the product space theory, right? That it's yeah. if, you, if you're making machine parts, it's easier to move into machine tools because you're already making some of the components. It's easier to get to a close-by industry rather than to start exactly something completely different because some of the skills and technology will be the same or transferable and and so on. The problem with the comparative advantage theory is it says specialize at what you're good at. So if you're good at exporting cocoa, stick to exporting cocoa, but that can Mm. lock you into a trade trap. If you look at the most successful countries in the world economically, they have diversified economies Mm. as as Mm. you're 
implying there. So, you know, Britain in its heyday, China now, the United States when it was the world's manufacturing superpower. Switzerland is still the world's most industrialized economy and produces all sorts of things. You know, it's not just chocolate and clocks. They do chemicals and pharmaceuticals and all sorts of precision tools and all sorts of other things. My question is, you have a limited number of trees you can jump to if you produce tea or coffee as your main export. You can process your coffee. You can try and capture, Mm. you can do some of the roasting and grinding and maybe packaging and branding, try and capture some of that value. But really, your economy is so narrow, there there aren't really other trees to to jump to. And that's Mm. where, you know, government policy really becomes important. But to speak to your question directly about Rwanda, I mean, it's a really fascinating question. The vision for Rwanda is that it will specialize in things that don't require physical trade necessarily. I remember the first time I visited Rwanda was maybe 2009 or 10, and they very kindly at the university let me have an office to work in. And the internet speed was faster than my office here in Dublin. They had just installed all of these fiber optic cables across the country, and I was absolutely amazed. So the vision Mm. is to, I think, recognize the limitations, but to specialize or try and specialize in those services, finance, and other things that can be conducted online. Higher up the value chain. And then also to try and boost tourism, you know, capitalize on the country's, you know, beauty, the fact that they they have gorillas there. There was that controversial agreement with Arsenal, I think it was, (laughs) where it said, you know, visit Rwanda. And people were saying, is this a good use of money? You know, putting uh, a country's name on football football players' shirts, you know. But they have a huge new conference center in Rwanda. We went. Yeah. So we were there. So, you know, it's trying to to kind of look for those niches and leverage them for economic development, while also trying to develop the agricultural sector and add value, processing value to that for exports. I want to drill a little bit deeper, if I may. I think you're absolutely correct. I know in South Africa, when I was working in the office of the leader of the Democratic Alliance in Cape Town, we always referenced Kigali. We always like to say in 24 hours, you can get a new business registered in Kigali in Mm. contrast to South Africa that takes months and months. That's mm. if somebody hasn't lost your paperwork. And also what you've just mentioned is that, that stunning broadband connectivity. I think it's got the highest level of internet penetration in Africa. Mm. I stand to be correct. Just to unravel your question a little bit, do you think that Rwanda and small African states, the smaller ones, you've also referenced Botswana, which is always upheld by people like Mo Ibrahim. You know, mm. the, uh, foundation is a great shining light. Mauritius is another one. Again, yeah. those rapid rates of growth. Do you think rather than like trying to put behind that perennial problem of the resource curse in Africa and that dependency upon natural resources, do you think they could have the potential to develop into world-class tech and innovation hubs that compete with the world's best? Again, a really interesting question. I suppose Botswana has a lot of diamonds and again Mm. has been able to manage those very effectively and invest the revenues into social programs and into economic development. So I suppose the resource curse is, some people have said it's more to do with governance, although there's debates about that. When you're talking about tech and innovation. Obviously, South Africa is a very developed economy and there are tech companies there. Cape Town is a bit mm. of a hub for technology, but the one that gets a lot of attention is so-called Silicon Savannah in Kenya. Mm. The You've seen a lot of startup companies. Nigeria also has 
some so-called unicorn tech companies yes uh, so with valuations of over a billion dollars a few big ones yeah flutterwave i know is is one of those yeah it's interesting the big western companies the fangs facebook amazon netflix google and the others they're interested in africa now i think amazon has just set up in south africa in cape town google is investing in innovation centers there is Mm. potential at the moment in terms of the tech sector there's what I call thin integration into the global informational economy. That means that Africa is still importing a lot of its technology from China, from Western countries. Most African universities are very resource constrained. If you look at the big tech clusters and hubs, often they go with universities. So, you know, Silicon Valley and Stanford, for example, obviously US government procurement played a big role there as well. A lot of the tech development is around applications for mobile phones, kind of low end relatively low complexity mm. stuff and it's very hard to really make money or a good bit of money it is out of those kinds of applications the kenyan government is investing in something called konza tech city outside of nairobi with this vision that it's going to be a major tech hub along the lines of silicon valley or or cambridge in, in the us or the uk for that matter it's very very difficult because you're up against these big established players in that space it's very difficult to compete with them except at those lower end applications. If you have a laptop, you can write a, a mobile phone application, but to develop a new chip, you know, the United States I was reading doesn't even have the capacities apparently to develop yeah. some of these ultra high end chips. You know, yeah. they're, they're very dependent on one company in Taiwan. It's a tough space. Yeah, it really is. You're speaking to someone that can barely switch the iPad on that I'm speaking to you from. So, you know, <laughs> well, I still operate a paper diary. So. <laughs> you know, uh, I think it is actually developing its own mobile phone. So let's see how that goes. Uh, And I think that's a wonderful thing. So that most famous son of Africa, Elon Musk, he was in London two weeks ago. Bizarrely, or perhaps eccentrically, been interviewed by the Prime Minister, the impact of artificial intelligence. And Musk made headline news around the world saying about that the job losses is going to be unprecedented with artificial intelligence. It's going to cut a swath through the jobs market globally. And already, Africa, as you know better than I do, has got massive rates of unemployment, nearly 50% in South Africa. Male unemployment is really high across the entire continent. What can Africa do? do to mitigate this disruption, this biggest disruption since the Industrial Revolution? Because a lot of African economies are underdeveloped, some people say that actually the continent will be less affected by artificial intelligence. Richard Baldwin has a really Mm, good book called The Globotics Upheaval, and he talks about the convergence of robotics and artificial intelligence and some of these other technologies of the so-called fourth industrial revolution and how they're going to gut the middle and working classes in the Western countries in particular. So accountants, teachers, doctors, all of these kind of professions could potentially be subject to automation. He says, if you think the populism we've had so far has been bad, wait mm. until these technologies really you know, kick in and make their impact <laughs> felt, which is worrying. But some people have said, yeah, Africa will be less affected because it doesn't have those many of those kinds of jobs already. So they won't be subject to automation out. Now, robotics is an interesting one. Most countries, when they have industrialized, have done so on the back of the textile, clothing and footwear industries. They're relatively stable technologies. They're not highly skilled. Low wages can be an advantage in terms of getting your your foot on the ladder of industrialization in those industries. 
Some of the processes can be automated in those industries. I've seen them myself, you know, automated stitching machines. and But a lot of the work mm. is too intricate, apparently, to be automated easily or not cost effectively, where it might make sense to have a robot build a car for now. For now. I'm sure yeah. you're right. Yes, they will <laughs> develop and improve in time. But at the moment, still, it's not cost effective because you need that kind of dexterous handwork to do a lot of the assembly. Some people say there's still a window of opportunity there for African countries to capture a greater proportion of that manufacturing trade as wages have risen in China and Vietnam and, and some of the other countries are, are getting out of those industries. Thank you. So interesting. That really makes sense, really. I want to move on a bit, a little bit the conversation to more reflect your book, basically. And I think you were mentioning about China and you've got huge sections in the book on China. Can you tell us more about what is exactly... China's play here in Africa? Like, what is the vision of China in Africa? I think there's a lot of guff in terms of the Western mm -hmm. perspective. There's like an anti-China kind of hate. Although Xi Jinping was in San Francisco just like, you know, last week and they cleaned up the streets for him, right? There's also like a lot of doom and gloom when it comes to China. So can you elaborate on, from the CCP's perspective, what is the vision of China in Africa and how are they sort of executing upon it? Another really fascinating question question. The thing about Chinese foreign policy is it's flexible and adaptive. They have produced now two mm -hmm. Africa policies where they state what their kind of relationship is, what they hope the relationship will be. It's pretty bland. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about, well, we're win-win globalization. We were both exploited by the Western powers. Mm -hmm. That's a, com a common history of colonialism. We're not like that. We're, here to, we're, we're here to help. Yeah. Kind of rhetoric gets repeated again and again and again in policy documents. And obviously it serves a kind of ideological function. Mm. I'm not sure there is a grand plan or strategy for Africa in the same way as there might be for Asia, because Asia is much more economically mm. important to China and China wants to displace mm. the United States as the dominant power in the Asia Pacific that it sees as its backyard. Yeah. And that some people have said maybe mm. is the first step towards a much more prominent global role, although you were talking about Xi Jinping in San Francisco there at the Apex Summit, and some people were, journalists were commenting that yeah. he was basically making the case that now China and the US were on par with each other, that they were equal in terms of their influence <laughs> in the international yeah. system. I think Africa, some people have said, mm. was more important for China in the early stages of its going out policy, because it was a testbed, because the mm. Western powers had neglected Africa after the, the Cold War, aid was cut dramatically. The, the British and the Americans disengaged mm. substantially from the continent and that left a kind of open playing field, some people have argued, for China to come in. Markets were small. They weren't really of interest to big mm. Western companies, but Chinese companies hadn't globalized to the same extent. Because there was less competition, Africa was a conducive testbed or market for them to globalize. So if you look at Zambia, Zambia had the first overseas Chinese bank in Africa and first overseas owned Chinese mine as well in the late 1990s mm -hmm. in that time period. And as I mentioned to you, Africa was a critical supplier of natural resources for China in the last couple of decades, but that importance and dependence is reducing. If you look at the total level of Chinese investment on the mm -hmm. continent, it's around the same as it is in Germany. Germany is Europe's biggest economy. It's the third biggest economy in the world. So it's a big, big economy.
economy, but still gives you a sense, you know, one country versus 54 or 55 countries. China has something called the Belt and Road Initiative, which is its signature or signal foreign policy, which has been in place for 10 years now. There are different components to it, but for much of that time, it was giving loans from Chinese banks to Chinese companies to build roads, railways, ports, power stations, big infrastructure projects in Africa, but in other places as well. A lot of those projects have come unstuck or have underperformed economically. There's been a dramatic rollback in the last couple of years from 2016 in the amount of money that has been going to fund those. New loans have fallen during covid Chinese trade with Africa fell, private investment fell. We've seen the drop in exports of oil and some other commodities to China. But there's also a focus on some key strategic or critical commodities, things like cobalt, which are essential for lithium ion Mm. batteries, which go into electric vehicles. There's real competition between the US and China around some of those minerals. 40% of new car sales in China now are of electric vehicles. It's, I think, about a quarter in France by way of comparison. So some people said there's been a kind of a deprioritization of Africa economically. But that doesn't mean that the continent isn't mm-hmm. important to China. It's becoming increasingly important geopolitically. So in the context of what some people have talked about, this new Cold War between the West or the US and China, votes at the UN are important. All of the alliances that the US is trying to mobilize and global public opinion around the war in Ukraine or, or even the Israel Israel-Hamas war. There's a battle for global public opinion. There's a geopolitical scramble for Africa. Some people have talked about a third scramble for Africa, which is largely geopolitical. And then, of course, you have Russia into the equation as well. There's something called the Russosphere, active in Africa, which is basically Russian disinformation on the internet, trying to sway public opinion in countries in the Sahel and elsewhere against the Western powers and France in particular, as the former colonial power in that region. There's a a very live geopolitical contest and context now. And I was reading yesterday, apparently we're back to Mm. almost exactly the same number of democracies and autocracies in the world that we were at in 1990. We see this Cold War analogy coming through now. Decreasing again. Yeah. So it's again a big question, but a a very interesting one. And obviously has all sorts of, of political impacts. But democratize I think is is one of the casualties potentially in the new context. Yeah, I wonder if the reversal of the number of democracies, not only in Africa, but also sort of around the world is sort of because the 80s and the 90s people equated prosperity with democracy. And I think that link has been decoupled in a lot of ways in the last you know 20 years with a lot of populism and the hollowing out of the Midwest in the US, as well as a lot of the economies, which like Singapore, it's not a democracy with a big D, but it's actually making great strides in economic prosperity. People care more about the quality of life and a bit of freedom versus the operating principle of the government. That's what it boils down to these days. Yeah, again, you're analyzing that absolutely correctly. And I suppose the other thing people have said is if you looked at the response of Western governments to the global financial crisis, but what the Chinese Mm. called the North Atlantic financial 
financial crisis because they didn't really experience it. Mm. Monetary easing and quantitative easing, who did that benefit? Well, it benefited the bankers and the investor Mm. class and ordinary working people saw inequality increase dramatically. And of course, then that's going to feed into populism electorally. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense really. And and that's why I feel like we mentioned before circling back to more of Frederick Leistian industrial policy in Africa needed versus the more Milton Friedman laissez-faire, you know, which as you mentioned in your book that Jeffrey Sachs mentioned as well, that it doesn't work, right? Just going back to your point, John, about Qatar and UAE, these countries becoming like hubs through the airplane travel. It's quite interesting, but it wasn't like that before the 90s and the 80s, you know? And I was actually reading the biography of the current or the ruler of Dubai, and it was the 70s where his dad was ruling. And the Emirates Airlines was the epitome of the industrial policy because it didn't exist. So what he thought was basically create like a national airline and fund it. And yeah, you saw that geographically it's quite in the middle, right? So if we can get people and trade flowing and subsidized for a long time, you know, those big infrastructures you see in Dubai, the big airport, the airline subsidized for a long time. Now it's ROI positive, right? But it was all industrial policy that made them into that hub, did that specialization diversification of the economy, like you mentioned, right? So some good industrial policy tooling actually can take you much, much far. So hopefully African can achieve that as well. That's brilliant. We'll start wrapping up. John, did you have any other questions? Just one last one, if I may. Is that okay? Sure. I think you're absolutely right about China and an African leader. I can't remember who said it about the United States, but the Americans, they bring a lecture and the Chinese build an airport. And I think that very much captures the raisin debt of this discussion. But there's something that I find tantalizing and that intrigues me, what you've just said about the financial crisis in 2008, which was never dealt with and we're still feeling its impact today. And that is as the neoliberal order seems to be in decline now and certainly be in question and for all kinds of reasons, ecological, its sustainability, how indebted the global north is, particularly the United States to China and so on. One looks at Africa, one looks at its communal approach, its humanitarianism. What you spoke of so compellingly at the beginning, almost an hour ago, about this pan-African spirit, what Paul Kagame said, African solutions to African problems. So as we see a move away from the efficacy of the structural adjustment programs that were very much in vogue in the 1990s at the beginning of the 20th century, as they're losing more and more credibility, and we're seeing the decline of the neoliberal order, do you think Africa has got anything to offer to reimagine the global economy? Great question. So I suppose I have a few responses to that. Colin Crouch talks after the global financial crisis about the strange non-death of neoliberalism, even though it was intellectually discredited, it was still being implemented. So, you know, in Ireland and Greece, the pigs countries, as they were called in Europe, we had IMF austerity programs. Neoliberalism was still being implemented, even though it was neoliberalism which created the crisis. So it seemed a strange solution. Um, (laughs) But what we're seeing in a lot of Africa now is because of the debt distress and debt crisis across a lot of the continent, again, the IMF is being looked to by countries like Zambia and Ghana. And the prescriptions are still the same. Cutting public expenditure, balancing the books, comparative advantage strategies, all of those kind of structural adjustment policies you were referencing there. It's an interesting question as to whether neoliberalism is dead. And one of the things which is commentators have talked about is that it's now China, which is the champion of open markets globally. It used to be the United States, but the US has actually gotten much more protectionist 
under Trump and also under Biden, you've had this kind of strange reversal that's kind of happened. Also, that gives mm. China a kind of potentially leadership edge in this context with the US. To come to your question about what Africa can offer, and I think that's, again, a great observation about that collective spirit and will. And uh, you know from South Africa, people talk about Ubuntu as yes. a philosophy, the idea that we're not mm. all individuals as there is such a thing as society. To counter what Margaret Thatcher said, <laughs> that you exist because I exist. No, yes. no person is an island. We can't survive without each other. And we need that social interaction. And we need the economic interactions with other people to survive. It's just kind of common sense. What Africa can offer in terms of a vision, again, is really interesting. You talked about the global ecological crisis in Ireland or the UK or the US. You know, we're big greenhouse gas emitters. I, I think Ireland, it's about 17 or 18 tonnes of carbon dioxide per person yeah. a year, similar to the US, largely because of our agricultural sector. If you look at Africa, most African countries are a tonne or less than that. And apparently the Earth atmosphere system could sustainably absorb about two tonnes of carbon dioxide per person per year. There would be no climate change. The oceans and the other sinks can absorb that. But it's just the scale and the pace of pollution has been so fast and so massive. A lot of African economies are already green economies on that measure. In the global north, talk about transitioning to green economy. African economies on that measure are already green. Now, obviously, many of them perform poorly in terms of welfare measures, but like some of the social indicators have been improving. Life expectancy has gone up pretty quickly in Africa in the last two decades. The image of the kind of disaster, basket case, hopeless continent, as the economist called it in its 2000 edition, is gone, hopefully. So it was never there, really, anyway. But the more ecological approach, the greater emphasis on social solidarity. Again, we've lost sight of that in many Western economies where your status is determined by your wealth and your consumption power. Those are values and assets that can work with economic development in terms of levels of trust and those kinds of things as well. There are other potential benefits there as well. There's a, a really good book just out this year called Successes in Africa. Things Don't Always Fall Apart by Julie Hearn. She talks in that book about the economic successes in unexpected places in Africa. So a lot of people talk about Ethiopia and Rwanda and Botswana, but she talks about places like Gabon. Now, Gabon has just had a military coup. Politically, that may not be the most conducive to economic development into the future. Again, it comes back to this idea of systemic vulnerability theory that we were talking about earlier, where governments or regimes feel that they need to develop the economy to stay in power and to protect their citizenry that can really spur economic development. There's huge diversity across the continent now in terms of economic performance, much different than the 80s and 90s when you know the vast majority of countries really struggled economically. I think there's a variety of things, but for me, the lesson of the ecological crisis is that we are all in the same boat and we're going to have to find ways of cooperating more to resolve some of these global challenges which threaten our existence everywhere. The biodiversity crisis, the climate crisis, artificial intelligence is another. I think it was Elon Musk said this could potentially be an existential mm. threat to humanity. So we need to regulate these things and we need to cooperate more. The Pax Americana is in difficulty. 
or gone, some people say. So we need a new global <laughs> institutional yeah. architecture. Some people talk about a Pax Pluralis. We mm. need new global institutions mm. which are inclusive, which don't just reflect the Western powers, economic and political and military weight and history, but we need much more inclusive global institutions to cooperate on these grand challenges. And that, to me, Africa has been doing some interesting and innovative things around the African continental free trade area, for example, and cooperating more deeply. Mm. But again, we need to scale cooperation or rescale cooperation to that global level and dial down the hyper competition of neoliberalism because it will lead to climate catastrophe and biodiversity catastrophe amongst other hills in the long run. Thank you. That makes sense. And I hope that the technologies like the internet can be an equalizing force because it doesn't matter if you're in Africa, doesn't matter if you're in the US, everyone equally has a say and you can build stuff on top of it. You just need a laptop and an internet connection and a microphone just like we have right now. So on that positive note, we'll wrap up for today. Dr. Parikh, thank you very much for joining us. And yeah, all the best. Maybe looking forward to your next book whenever that comes out. Hopefully. Great. Thanks very much, Wahid and John. Great to Thank you for to your both. time. It was a wonderful conversation. Great. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you very much for listening to the Innovation Civilization podcast. If you love the podcast, please subscribe on all major platforms, as well as please share it with your friends and family. Thank you very much for listening and see you soon for the next episode.